Well, good morning to each one of you. Happy New Year's. It's great to be back in worship with you. I'm glad that you're here. We are finishing up uh, this week and next week a series in, uh, on the places of Christmas, the places that Jesus shows up in our world, in our lives. This week, we're looking at Jesus in the desert as a place of Christmas. And then next week, uh, Portland, the journey home as a place of Christmas. And then we'll begin, um, for those of you who are interested, a, a rather extended study in the Gospel of Luke in uh, three weeks. But let me read Lesson 5 for us, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need your spirit to help us understand this text, to see how Jesus' temptations and his victory over them are relevant to us today. Meet us where we are. Some of us are spiritually full from this season of Advent. Others are spiritually starving. Some of us are desperately needy for just the smallest sense of your presence. Others are looking for ways to avoid you. God, wherever you find us this morning, would you find your way into our hearts? Would you meet our shame with your grace, your sin, our sin with your forgiveness? Renew us, restore us, give us hope this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are modern people. We're sophisticated people. We live in the 21st century. And so maybe we're tempted to kind of overlook this text because it talks a lot about the devil as if he's real, as if he walks and talks, as if he can show up in our world and has power to tempt us. How can we take the Bible seriously when it talks about things like this? We imagine a devil with a pitchfork in tights with horns and a cape. Who's intimidating in tights? If this trips you up, let me say this. If you believe in a personal God, or even the possibility of a personal God, why is it difficult to believe that there may be a personified evil in our world? Why would that be illogical if you're willing to at least consider that God, a spirit of goodness, may exist in our world? But the most persuasive reason to take this passage seriously To take the devil seriously is that Jesus took the devil very seriously. 
Not a devil in a funny red costume wearing tights, but a personal evil that is opposed to everything that is good and true. Everything that God is, everything that he stands for. Now, we live in a very specific cultural and historical moment that may prejudice against against things like believing in the devil. But I ask you, suspend your disbelief for just a moment, because if you're going to consider Jesus and who he is, you need to consider what he thought about reality, how he thought about the world, how he thought about good and evil. And certainly, he presumed, his presupposition, what he knew to be reality is that the devil is very real and very active. Now, maybe we come to this text and stumble over this whole idea of the devil, but there is something that we all can relate to in this passage, and it's the issue of temptation. Now, it's a good year, good time of the year to talk about temptation. As Steve alluded to, many of us are in the first days or the first day of our good New Year's resolution, of our new commitments. We're imagining the body that we'll have after three months of hard exercise and a new diet. But one day soon, it'll be cold and rainy, and you'd rather sit at home and watch TV and eat cereal than venture into the cold to get to the gym. Or maybe it's when the alarm goes off early in the morning and you just want to sleep in in the warmth of your sheets. Now, why is it that the snooze button is the largest button on every alarm clock? I think that is created by the devil. Now, you might say, well, is Satan really all that concerned with whether I exercise? Maybe. But let's expand this a bit to something more serious. Maybe you want to stay faithful in your marriage. And in the first few months, it's quite easy. It's exciting. But then you realize after a few months or a few years that marriage is hard. It takes many hours of difficult work, of difficult conversation, and that you don't always get what you want out of marriage. You don't always acquire what you want out of this relationship. It takes effort and time and thinking. And then you start thinking about the attractive coworker at your office who always seems to say the right thing to you, who's always well-dressed. And you find yourself imagining your needs met by that relationship, by that person, rather than your spouse. You see a collision of wants in your heart. You want to protect your marriage. You want to preserve what you have with this person, but you also want very deeply to explore this new enticing relationship. This is what temptation is. Which want is going to win out? The devil collides our wants against one another. He plays them against one another, trying to subvert the most supreme one, the most supreme one of God. The nature of temptation is a misvaluation. It's a misallocation of values. We begin to question whether God is really worth it, whether our wants of him, whether our commitments to him are really justified. And therefore, temptation doesn't limit It's range to obvious evils, but it invades all of the good things of life as well. The good things of creation, it tempts us, he tempts us to think of them as ultimate things, not as good gifts, but as preeminent things that subvert the role of God in our lives. It plays upon our vanity. Temptation plays upon our fear, plays upon our desire to control life and have 
everything we could possibly want or imagine. If we think temptation is simply manipulating us into a certain behavior, we're missing the point. Instead, temptation at its most foundational level is leading us to misvalue God himself. Is he really worth everything? Is he really worth giving our lives to? Is he really good? And will he show up in our time of need? This is the root of the devil's temptation to Jesus. He is attempting to drive a wedge between Jesus and his father, to draw him into a selfish independence, to say, you know what? I am the son of God, and I'm hungry. I deserve bread. I deserve to be attended upon by God. Now, that's sort of the anatomy of temptation. But let's look at the context here that Jesus is experiencing. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led or driven by the Spirit out into the desert. Now, maybe you've been around church long enough to develop this rather common spiritual sensibility that we can somehow remove ourselves from temptation, that we can arrive at a place of spiritual maturity, a place of serenity, that we become less and less susceptible to temptation. Friends, it's a fool's errand to seek that place. The Son of God himself is tempted greatly. So no level of spiritual maturity, no geography of life can insulate you from temptation, can create a buffer around you that protects you from being tempted. Following his baptism, as Jesus is about to enter into public ministry, the Spirit didn't lead Jesus away from all that was tawdry and sinful of our world everything that might be temptation-laden to protect him. Instead, he takes him deeper into the heart of darkness itself. If this is Jesus' reality, if this is his experience, then certainly this would be the experience of anyone who chooses to follow him. If he, the most mature spiritual person who ever lived, experiences temptation, then friends, surely we can expect the very same thing. The normal Christian life is full of spiritual warfare. It's life in the trenches, battling against Satan, battling against our worst desires, trying to assimilate truth into that collision of wants, trying to figure out how can I appropriately value God in a way that allows these wants, these immature wants, these evil wants to begin to dissipate and disappear in our lives. As I quoted in the front of your bulletin, C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is, he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse until, inside us until we try to fight it. 
And Christ, because he was the holy man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Do you get that? He believes in this spiritual world where devils exist, where demons exist, where angels exist, and yet he is the true realist. He's the only complete realist who ever lived. You know this. Resisting that tasty-looking pastry for hours takes far more willpower and determination than to resist it for 10 minutes. Resisting having an illicit love affair with an attractive coworker takes one degree of energy if there's very little chance that it will actually happen. But it requires far more strength to resist it if you've fought against it for years and the other party is willing. If there's a chance that it might happen, it's far more difficult to resist. The longer you and I hold out against temptation, the more energy it takes. Jesus understood this more than anyone, for a lifelong resistance helped him come to appreciate the real power that the devil has in our world, the real power that temptation has. After several weeks with no food, Jesus is in the desert, terribly hungry, actually on the verge of actual starvation. For 40 days he hadn't eaten. He's vulnerable. He's weak. He's alone. Now, when you're really hungry, maybe you feel a little on edge as well, a little more susceptible to anger, to impatience. When my kids try to talk to me before I have coffee in the morning, before I have breakfast in the morning, I'm a bit more ornery. I'm a bit more impatient. But it's nothing compared to 40 days without food, being alone, and the devil sees an opening. We're told that Jesus is full of the, of the Holy Spirit, but this is not some impenetrable shield. We've got to see that the devil had a real chance here, that he wanted to exploit Jesus' weakness, not only to get him to fall into sin and doubt, but to destroy the whole project that Jesus was about. That Satan knew that Jesus had come to renovate the whole world, to restore what it was made for. And if you could get Jesus to doubt, if you could get Jesus to distrust his father and to seek his own, then he had won. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't have an impenetrable shield to guard him against Satan. Because Jesus is not only the Son of God, divinity itself, but he's also a genuine human. His divinity doesn't alter his humanity. Now think with me for a minute. What happens if you shoot Clark Kent? Nothing. The bullet bounces off of him, whether he has his super suit on or not. If he has a tie on and you punch him, he's still still the man of steel. He's faster than a speeding bullet, even without his cape and tights. He looks like a real, normal human, but he's not. He's from Krypton. He's Superman. You can't hurt him even when he has his glasses on. Now, we may be tempted to think of Jesus in somewhat the same way. He looks human enough, but because he's also divine, he must have some superhuman immunity to sin. And so why treat him like an exemplar, a model to follow? Because it's Jesus. He's so much less human than us. But Jesus was no 
Clark Kent, who only appeared to be a mild-mannered person, but underneath was impervious to bullets and such. Matthew goes to great lengths to show that, that Jesus is hungry, that he is vulnerable, that he's weak, that we need to see that Jesus gets hungry just as we do, that he gets tired, that he gets worn out just like you and I, and yet he resists. But what's going on here? What's the larger context? That's the specific setting of what's going on. But why are we in the desert to begin with? Why is Jesus, as he begins his ministry, led into the desert? Why does he need to show that he can resist temptation? Matthew is providing for us not just simply an admiration of Jesus resisting sin, not just a model to follow. There's so much more. He's also giving us a narrative of hope, a reason to have true hope in this world, even in the midst of temptation. Matthew gives us parallels here of two of the most central elements of Israel's history, the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden and the failure of Israel in the desert wanderings. As we wrap up here this relatively short sermon, let's look at those two things. Adam and Eve first. He's wanting us to see the contrast between Jesus' victory over temptation and Adam's failure. He wants us to see that in meeting Satan in the desert, that he's setting into motion a reconstituting of humanity itself. That everything that humans were created to do and to be, everything that Adam and Eve were supposed to carry out, that Jesus is coming and succeeding where they failed. You remember the conversation that Satan had with Eve? It's eerily similar. He doesn't just say, here, Eve, take hold of this fruit. Here, Eve, eat of this. It's tasty. It's lovely. No, no, no. He questions her. He, gets, he, he has devious questions that drives a wedge between her and her trust of God. He says, has God really said that you can't eat from the tree? You're the crown of creation, Eve. God loves you. Why would he restrict you from doing anything? Why would he withhold this great gift from you? Has he really said that? Is he really good? Can you really trust him if he withholds this from you? It's the very same tactics that he uses with Jesus. He questions Jesus. He tries to get Jesus to question the goodness of and the provision and care of God. He tries to get him to doubt that God is really for him and whether God will come through in his moment of need. Jesus, you're the son of God. Turn these stones to bread. Why would God have any problem with that? You are hungry. You're the son of God. Why are you, the Messiah, left to starve in the desert? Has God really said that? Now notice also the parallels between Israel and the desert. We see the striking contrast between Jesus' success and his resistance to temptation where Adam and Eve failed. In the very same way that they are tempted to distrust God, Jesus says, no, I will trust him. I will love him. I will continue in his mission. Jesus must succeed where they failed. He must be the new Adam the new humanity. He's reconstituting everything that humanity was meant to be. 
But he also, if we understand Matthew, if we understand our Bible, he must be the new Israel as well. Every reply that he gives in this passage is from two chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. In this passage, Jesus went where the Israelites once went, out into the wilderness, out into the desert. In the Bible, the wilderness is always emblematic for evil, for chaos, for nothingness, for uncreation. It's the very opposite of everything that God designed the world to be. The wilderness is this place of formlessness and void, a place where demons howled, a place where order was absent, a place of sin and evil, a place the opposite of everything that is good about the world. The Israelites, in their distrust of God, were forced to endure great temptation wandering the wilderness. They became utterly dependent upon God to protect them in this torturous place, this place of uncreation. But over and over, they failed to recognize God's provision and care. They failed to worship him for who he was. They threw off his rule in their lives. Now Jesus, the new Israelite, is thrown into this very same world, forced to depend upon God, forced to endure great temptation. He endures 40 days of hunger as emblematic of the 40 years of wandering the desert that Israel experienced. He's retracing their steps. He's succeeding in all of the ways that they failed. And what's more, Deuteronomy was the book of covenant renewal It's charting the way forward for Israel after they had entered the promised land, after the time of the wilderness. By invoking Deuteronomy so incessantly, Jesus is not only recapitulating their wilderness experience, but he's also pointing you and I to the promises of joy and rest that the promised land stood for. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I succeed where Israel failed. I succeed where humanity failed. I am the best human. I am the new humanity. I am the new Adam. I am the new Israel. Tucked into Jesus' words as he quotes from Deuteronomy is a promise of peace. He says, I am being tempted. I am suffering on your behalf in order to give you the promises that were originally given to humanity, that they threw off, that they neglected. He is saying, I am. I'm giving them to you again. I'm full of mercy. I'm full of peace. I am the Messiah that is leading you not to the physical promised land in the Near East, but to the ultimate promised land, the ultimate hope of all humanity. As we conclude, why resist? Why do we stand against temptation? It is not to secure God's love, it's not to earn his embrace. No, he resists temptation in order to earn yours, in order to gain your affection, in order to draw you back to God, back to the true purpose of humanity. He says, every time you fail and you will, I have succeeded on your behalf. In all of the places that you have failed, that you have given in to temptation, I have resisted on your behalf. You see, friends, he's so much more than a model. He's so much more than just an exemplar, a role model to follow. He is resisting temptation for you and for me. 
If we understand Christianity rightly, if we understand the gospel, you don't resist temptation to try and secure God's approval, to try and win his smile, but to resist everything that's ugly and untrue about the world. You resist temptation as a protest against everything that the world has become and to participate in Jesus' renewal of all things, including your own life, your own humanity. You resist temptation as a protest to everything that would drive a wedge between you and your Creator, everything between you and your relationship with God Himself. You don't resist temptation to make God proud of you, but to envision a whole new world, a whole new way that things could be. Jesus is far more than an example. His temptation in the desert, his success where humanity fell, failed, tells you, I will do anything to restore you to the Father. I will do anything to take you home. I will do anything to take your greatest hopes and secure them ultimately on your behalf. I will be, in, I will be hungry in the desert so that you can be well-fed forever. I will be abandoned in the desert at the cross so that you can have your soul restored forever. That's the point of this passage. It's not simply saying resist temptation. It's not simply a methodology. It is Jesus suffering, Jesus resisting on your behalf and my behalf. Would you take hold of that this Christmas season, this Advent season? Take hold of it now as we pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into our world to upend all the things that we had done to make this world an evil place, all of the ways that we have not cared for your creation, not cared for our own humanity, the ways that we have thrown off your gentle rule in our lives. We thank you that instead of turning away from us, that you sent an ambassador, you sent your only son to be good where we had failed to do what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his work on the cross to draw us to you. Father, let us trust in that this week, not in anything we do, not whether we are successful in fighting off temptation this week or whether we give in massively. Let us hold on to the gospel because you have held on to us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.